At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 733rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. And today's is a special episode. It's one that I do on Rosie on the House every month. It's a local radio show in Phoenix, Arizona. And we will be talking about what is an urban farm. Enjoy. Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the House. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Heart living is the life for me. On a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning, just wet desert everywhere, the smell of creosote, the green carpet of weeds and grass growing up all over the place. We've got flowers blooming. It's going to be a beautiful spring. And here in this fourth Saturday of the month, we are talking urban farming with Farmer Greg joining us. And if you're following along in our annual homeowner handbook, you can see March 25th today, we're talking urban farming, urban farm fun. Now, Greg, I liked the topic when I saw that you had selected that because that, I think that's what a lot of people forget. It is supposed to be fun. It's a labor of love, but it is fun. Yep. Yeah, exactly. If you're, and I'm a big proponent of, if you're not having fun doing anything, don't do it. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, man, have fun or don't do it. And so what, where are we going to start with today? I love this first talking point. It's something that sums it up very nicely. Local food economy? Just that everybody participates. Yeah, exactly. So if you're eating, you're participating in the food economy. And what I've done over the past 25 years is I've really looked at the systems that we have in for feeding ourselves. And many of them are global systems. And these global systems, while the reach of them is pretty incredible, and the sheer fact that we're feeding over 300 million people a day in the United States with these systems is pretty incredible. So the system itself is pretty incredible, and it has some major problems. And one of the big problems is the what we call food miles. Food miles is the the where the food is grown to where it's consumed. And the average food miles in the United States is 1,500. So that has quite an environmental impact. It also has an impact on our health in that often that food is harvested far away from us. It has to be harvested early. So it's not as nutrient dense as it could be Therefore, it's not as good for us. Plus, once they harvest it, it starts degrading the nutrients in it over time. So the food that we're getting often isn't as nutrient dense as it could be. 
And then a lot of the food that is produced is manufactured. So they're making chips, which Doritos are amazing, but <laughs> is it really food? So these are all things to consider when we're looking at our local food system. And the food, local food economy or the food economy is growing, harvesting, processing, transportation, distribution, and consumption. And if you're eating every day, you're participating in that. And what I've done over the past 15 years in many conversations is I've boiled it down to what we like to call our LFE or our local food economy model. And our local food economy model has seven components. And when we look at how a food system works, these are the seven components that we need in order to feed ourselves. You wanna hear what they are? I have a pen in hand, I'm ready. <laughs> All right, I always like to add education first because that's what I do. Makes so educating sense. people about where their food comes from, how to grow your own is really important. Point number two in this or part number two in the local food economy model is farming and farming methods. How do we farm and what can we look at to bring those resources in? There's farming in containers, there's aquaponics, there's all kinds of other things we'll talk about a little later but looking at the farming methods on how we actually raise food is really important. Part number three of the local food economy model is actual farmers. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. You too can have an urban farm. And we're gonna talk about the importance of that. Part number four of the local food economy model are seeds. And this is something I've been working on. You've heard me talk about the Great American Seed Up and what we do with the Great American Seed Up it energizes our local seed economy. Without local seeds, we can't have local food. And in the case of a downturn or a shortages, really the only seeds we have are what are in big box stores. And so creating a local seed economy is really important. And By seeds are something you can buy and last forever. We've talked about it before. They've propagated seeds they found in pottery buckets they estimated to be thousands of years old. Exactly, yeah. If you grow out your own seeds, bring them cool, dark, and dry, they can live indefinitely. So That's incredible. Yeah, and that's why we teach a lot about growing your own seeds, because it's important. Point number, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, is collection and distribution. That's you harvest the food, you collect it and package it and distribute it. It has to be done. And a lot of that is done at the local farmer's markets. Value added products are, let's say somebody wants to make kale chips. So I'll grow kale for somebody and somebody buys that kale from me and they make it into kale chips or peaches for jam. Or those are all value added products and then there's culture and policy. And culture has a lot to do with how we interact with food and policy has a lot to do with how we govern who can grow what. There are HOAs in the state that restrict your ability to actually grow food on your property. And as far as I'm concerned, that is bogus. And I tried to get that changed about I don't know, about 10 years ago. And it's a tedious process to get anything done there. And I was basically told, good luck. You're not going to have any luck with that. So it took them years to get the solar ban. 
it did. accomplished. So I I don't know if there's anyone currently leading the charge to to get rid of that restriction, but I would think eventually that's going to happen because that's to. ridiculous. And how would you enforce that? What are you going to do, arrest somebody because they've grown a tomato plant in a pot <laughs> on their back patio? Yeah, exactly. And I've had people that interact with me that say they had fruit trees in their yard and their HO made them take them down. And that's, see, that for me, that's a basic human right to be able to grow your own food. So anyways, we're not going down that road. <laughs> that is the local food economy model. It's, there's seven parts to it. There's education, farming methods, farmers, seeds, collection and distribution, value-added products, and culture and policy. And without all of those in combination, it makes it really hard to create our local food system. And one of the interesting things about the distribution that really hit home with me last summer when we had the Arizona Worm Farm join us in the broadcast was just how much prior to Amazon is showing up constantly. What was the majority of the trash in your home? It was food packaging. Yep. You know, the styrofoam for the meat, the saran wrap over Mm -hmm. that, the box of whatever that has a bag inside of it, the bag of chips. And there's just so much of our trash that we were throwing out was and is food packaging. But yeah. What was and how that really hit me was that he takes all of his cardboard and he uses it to feed his worms. His worms create the castings that helps them create food that he then consumes and composts what's left over there. So he's got to to steal your word, he's got a very regenerative cycle going on over there. Yes, he does, absolutely. In fact, after that conversation that we had with him last summer, I went out and bought a paper shredder. And I've been shredding my cardboard and feeding it to my worms. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It does. And you can get that podcast at rosyonthehouse.com. Just look for Urban Farm, Worm Farm, and you can in the keywords, and you'll be able to find that and listen to it. Zach was a very fun guest. Yeah. So moving. So I do. Hold on. I want to jump in here before we go. The food waste, the food packaging waste is massive in this country. And by growing your own, we eliminate that. So that's a bonus there. What people don't realize is that upwards of 90% of that stuff, the packaging never gets recycled because there's no market for it. And it, that just creates more waste in the future for your kids and grandkids. And that's a big reason why I do what I do is for our kids and grandkids. And I don't have kids. But we need to create a path for them that is less polluted. And by growing your own food, you're eliminating plastic, a lot of plastic waste. And a lot of that, even pizza boxes, they're cardboard, but because of the grease from the cheese and the ingredients in there, that can't be recycled Yeah, unless you're bringing it to your worm farm. (laughs) That's exactly what I was going to say. The worms are going to love it. Even worms love greasy cheese. (laughs) Absolutely. The interesting thing about worms is that the worms actually don't eat the food waste. They eat the microbes that are breaking down the food waste, which is really cool. Very technical. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. go. As always, we've got a lot of talking points here, and we're 
far outpacing the speed in which we are covering them. So let's do this. We're gonna cut short just a few seconds early so that we can start a brand new topic on your talking points coming back. We've got Farmer Greg talking urban farm fun, making sure you don't forget that, that you know, this whole process of growing food for yourself and your family and your neighborhood and your community. It should be a fun. And continuing our conversation with Farmer Greg and the urban farm, you had one more point about the impact of food shipping before we move on to our next talking points. The big reason to grow, one of the big reasons to grow on food is because it's more nutrient dense, reduces waste, and it significantly reduces the environmental impact. So what is an urban farm? That is really the question of the day. And an urban farm is a place that you can go or you can grow that grows food for your local area. It's really that simple. That you can go or you can grow. I like that. There you go. My urban farm when I was in Phoenix was a third of an acre. That was near 16th Street and Bethany home. It was 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. And on the property over 32 years that I lived there, we planted and grew over 80 fruit trees on the property. We had a, and we've talked about this on the show before, old growth food forest, which basically means that I planted open pollinated seeds that replanted themselves year after year. So there was always food to grow, whether it was parsley or basil or kale, lettuce, nasturtiums, beans. Those were all things that came back year after year. And I did worm composting at the property and had we had chickens. We had about hens that laid us eggs every day. And that was my rendition of an urban. Your rendition can really be anything from a few pots on your front porch to an old growth food forest like I had at the urban farm. And those pots on the forest, I know we hit it often, the easiest thing to grow and the most expensive thing in produce are herbs, and herbs grow great here. Exactly, and I love how you just learned that from me and you just share it. I love that. An urban farmer is actually even simpler. And an urban farmer grows food and shares it. I don't care if you're sharing it with your family or sharing it with your neighbors or taking it to the market. You can call yourself a farmer. And then the third piece of this that's really important, and that's that you name your farm. And people look at me sometimes and say, why should I name my farm? Naming your farm brings social credit to your space. And I had a tour at the urban farm a few years ago, and I raised my hand and I said, hey, how many people have named their farms? And a whole bunch of people later on in the process are naming their farms and they named them Two Fat Cats Apartment Garden <laughs> or Jack's Beanstalk. And look what you look what just happened with you. You giggled. It brings some levity and people, if you say I'm an urban farmer and I live at Two Fat Cats Apartment Garden, ooh, tell me about that. It builds the social conversation around local farms and local food. And the naming it brings a little bit of point of pride to you as well when you're taking care of and managing your own urban farm, having that, it just, it does something mentally to you. And so that's really important. And there are thousands of named farms in Phoenix. And when you're talking about a farmer, urban farmer shares something, I don't know any farmer that that's their point of what they're doing. They're doing it for others. It's an export. It's a commodity. You are growing it for others. Yes. And 
you can still be an urban farmer if you're just growing it for yourself. And the reason I specifically say this is because being a gardener is a hobby. Now, it's not a bad hobby. In fact, it's great if you're a gardener. But when you're a farmer, a farmer is a profession. So what I'm encouraging people to do is take your gardening hobby and turn it into a profession, whether you're teaching people. In fact, one of the big things that I did when I was in Phoenix, and we continue to do this, is urban farm tours in Phoenix and urban farm education in Phoenix. So I was growing less for public consumption, but I was sharing more in the education space. And there is so much need for that. If you have an urban farm, open it up to your neighbors. Bring them in and show them what you have because more than they do about what's going on in your space. So when people come to the urban farm for a tour, we'd start in the front yard and we just, I'd just look around and I'd start talking about what's going on in the space. And that engages people. People want to know this. So educate about it. Really important. And we can do that a number of different ways by tuning in every Saturday here at Rosie on the House, the fourth Saturday of the month. And we've got a new feature at our website where we've recategorized and cataloged our radio broadcast, where in the past we would put all three hours of our radio broadcast on one website page, one URL. And in our mind, so that's easy for the listener because then they don't have to remember what hour they were looking for and search through pages. But over the course of time, if you're trying to go back looking for worm farming, but it's also in a pod page where we're talking about drywall, it can be very tricky to the search engine to try and determine what am I looking for here or the user. I typed in worm farming. Why am I getting a URL with drywall in it? So each one of our podcast hours nice. now is broken into its own hour. And so you yeah. can click on the urban farming tag and then you can get all of Greg's podcasts there and search result, and then you can pick by category what you want to look at. So new, beautiful. Thank new, you for doing that. Yeah, new adoption of technology and best practices for our website. More with Farmer Greg right after this. If you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a conversation with Farmer Greg talking urban farm fun, and that it, a reminder that this should be fun, even though we're ultimate goal is to get you in the mindset of being a professional farmer at your home, even if you've got a full-time career, a full-time job, or you've got two or three. Once you get it established, the urban farm at your own property can be, for the most part, hands-free and regenerative by itself, just like nature is. And interesting that you would bring this up at this particular moment, not that you don't have notes that I gave you, but still interesting. <laughs> when I went back to college, I've been a lifelong learner I ended up at ASU in 1981, and I absolutely hated it. I got a 0.5 grade average. That's two Ds in an F. And my dad looked at me after that semester, and he says, oh, I get it. You don't want to be in college. And so I skipped college back then, and 19 years later, I re-enrolled back at Arizona State University. While I was going from 1999 to 2004, for that five-year period, what I was actually doing was I was farming my front and backyard at the urban farm. And it was just stuff that I was growing in the front and backyard, which included flowers, cut flowers, man. They sell like that. So what I was doing is on Wednesday mornings, I would go out and harvest what I had available in my front and backyard. And I would go to the town and country farmer's market 
and I would participate in the town and country farmers market from 10 until 2 over the lunch hour there. And I'd take home, well, two, three, four hundred bucks every time I went, which is pretty nice for being a 40-year-old in college to have that kind of money. And then anything, this is the cool part though, anything that I had left over at the end of the day, I took them over to Susan at the Calico Cow restaurant. She fed me and I gave her whatever was left over and she used it in her restaurant. Good trade. That was a great trade. Once it's set up and running, it pretty much self-runs. Not that it doesn't take work, it does take work, but for a day and a half of work, I was farming my front and backyard, going and interacting at the farmer's market, taking the leftover stuff to a restaurant and getting fed lunch. Anybody can do that. Single moms and dads, if you wanted to, or non-single moms and dads, if you wanted to start a little farm farmette thing like that, and harvest, that's great. College students, high school students, it's super simple to actually start growing in your front and backyards. And now we actually have, there's a nonprofit that runs at, I think the uptown market and the downtown market in Phoenix, that's the community booth. So you don't even, I used to set up a booth of my own at the farmer's market. You don't even have to do that anymore. You can just harvest the stuff and take it to the community booth and they'll sell it for you and pay you for it. Interesting. I had not heard yeah. of that. The community booth at the Uptown Market. Yeah. Very exactly. cool. Go check out Uptown Market, man. What she's, what they're doing there, Bo is incredible what she's set up and what they're, but what they're doing. The Uptown Market is one of the best markets in the country. They've been voted one of the best markets in the country. And we have it right in our backyard, Central and Bethany Home. And last I heard, they were doing Saturday markets and Wednesday markets. Okay. We'll look that up and make sure there's a link in this segment for that yeah. for quick access. Okay. And there's a, so, a lot of farmers markets throughout the entire state. Oh, there is. Certainly the Gilbert Downtown Farmers Market is incredible. I've not been to it. The Scottsdale Downtown Farmers Market is incredible. I've done I've been to there. I've been to the Cave Creek Market years and years ago for selling at the Cave Creek Market years ago. But Check out your local farmer's market. It'll make a difference for the farmer and you'll get healthier food for sure. Now, let's move on to growing and choosing your product because that's a big one. If everyone's growing oranges, maybe you find a different type of grapefruit. Or plant yourself some Cara Cara navel oranges rather than regular navel oranges that people go nutty for. I've been self-employed for almost 50 years. I've only had one real job in my life. I got fired from it, but the rest of the time I've been working for myself. And what I've learned over the past 30 years is the nichier that you get, the more focused you get, the better off you are. So if you're looking at making this into a business, rather than just growing food for your family and friends, if you're looking at making it into a business, you want to pick something and get real focused on it. Kevin, he does a mushroom business at the Uptown Phoenix Farmers Markets. He's specifically growing mushrooms. So, you know, you can do microgreen. You can, you can do greens in general, just, but get real specific. Don't do greens and chickens for eggs. And if I was gonna coach somebody about becoming an urban farmer, pick one thing, maybe herbs, 
and grow them, get the really good at that, and then travel on to the next thing. And, and when you're talking about that's if you're going for profit, you know, when if yeah. you're doing this for yourself, you can have chickens and eggs and a goat and this. But if you're trying to sell it, get really yeah. good at that one niche thing that, you know, are you how would you research that? Well, go to the farmer's market and take note of what they don't have. Exactly. Exactly. What what is missing from the farmer's market or go to the farmer's market? Maybe there's only one booth for fermented food. And you're into fermenting. And I have people that tell me this occasionally these days. What if there's too much competition? And my point about that is that when we're growing enough food in Phoenix to feed Phoenix or in the Valley to feed Phoenix or in Arizona to feed Arizona, there might be competition. There is a huge opportunity to grow food and grow local food. And yeah, so go for it, find something. And there's different ways to grow food as well. Um, there's a farm in a box. That's a really cool project where this company out of California sells you a container that has everything you need for a two acre farm. So you buy the container, they deliver the container, you open it up, everything that you need is in that container. That's called farm in a box. There's uh, container farming where they actually, so the farm in a box is you open the box up and you spread it out. It's got the seeds and the soil and whatever you need for a two acre farm. Then there's container farms where they're actually converting containers into hydroponic growing systems. And you're talking like the storage containers or like the shipping containers exactly. that you would see on a semi that are being repurposed. Exactly. And they have lights in them and they have hydroponic water systems in them. And that's another way. Aquaponics. Have you ever heard of aquaponics? I have because one of uh, you, you had a great aquaponic guest on two, uh, maybe yeah. three years ago. They three wrote years ago, the book. Yeah, Chris, exactly. Hi, aquaponics is you have a fish pond and the fish pond you're taking that water with fish poop in it and you're pumping it up through your garden beds and those garden beds are harvesting the nutrients out of the water, growing food, cleaning the water and putting clean water back into the fish tank. There's, so there's aquaponic systems. I know that St. Vincent de Paul, they have a huge aquaponic system set up. And they'll let uh, you come look at it. You can't just exactly. walk up necessarily, but call ahead, make sure somebody's there. They're happy to show you. And they've got a great community garden there. It's a several oh, acres huge. big. Yeah. Yeah. The work they're doing there is great. And then there's tower gardens. Have you ever heard of tower gardens? Uh, my uncle Probably. has one. Those are very cool. Yeah. Tower gardens looks like a Christmas tree growing food. It's a, they call it aeroponics but it's really a hydroponic system. There's a 20 gallon bucket of water at the bottom and it pumps the water to the top and that water trickles down the, the tower and waters and nutrifies the plants growing out of the side of the tower. And Troy over at True Garden out in Mesa is, has a huge greenhouse. I think it's a 5,000 square foot greenhouse <laughs> that he's got nine foot tower gardens in and there's 300 of them in there or something crazy like that. And they're growing hydroponic food like that. So there are so many opportunities 
to plug into the local food system and if you're inspired to start making a living growing in the low desert because there is such a need for it. And one of the things I really liked about the last few minutes of this segment was just breaking the mindset of what a farm is. Yeah. It's not the row crop that's 50,000 acres that you've got these combines. There's nothing wrong with those, but when we're looking at putting this on our own property, we're not trying to emulate these massive farm projects. There's so many different tools and methods, options for just a homeowner, even on a patio garden. That's a perfect application for a tower garden. Right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, what we used to do with our tower garden in Phoenix is we would grow greens in the summertime. So greens like lettuce and salad greens don't like the heat. So what we would do is we'd plant out our tower garden in May, June, July, August, and September, and we brought it inside with lights on it. So we were actually growing where it was cool inside, and we were harvesting salad greens all summer. Which is the December crop here in Yuma. <laughs> exactly. You're harvesting it in Phoenix in the summertime. That's pretty... Right. So there's more more methods than just your traditional row farming that I think is so imprinted in, in our minds from our incredible farming industry that's across America. But when we're bringing it into an urban farm in our backyard, you've really got to start thinking outside of the box and looking at other processes and determine how much size you had. You'd mentioned your third of an acre and 80 fruit trees. Well, it wasn't like this huge orchard everywhere. They were shaped in hedges and they were kept short and they were very practical and functional for your space. It, yes. it wasn't like we're talking about this big orchard that somebody could get lost in if they wandered into <laughs> it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. We just need to get creative. If you have any dirt at all, you should be growing food. In fact, I've said that about chickens too. If you have a backyard, you should get yourself a couple of couple, three, four, five hens, not roosters, hens, and Hens in your backyard are great workers. They eat bugs, they eat weeds, they poop, so you have fertilizer for your garden, and they give you eggs every day. What could be better than use your space? Pretty no-brainer for yeah. backyard chickens. We have one final segment with Farmer Greg right after this. What final things are we going to focus on in this segment? Well, we talked a little bit about where to sell. So there's farmer's markets, there's chefs, and there's something on here, there's an acronym on here that... A lot of people don't necessarily know what that means. It's called CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. In fact, when the pandemic hit, the CSAs in Phoenix or the Community Supported Agriculture Projects in Phoenix exploded because what they're doing is a CSA will go and coordinate. They'll either grow a lot of the food or most of their food or they'll coordinate with farmers and they'll build this collection box of garden goodies of farmed goodies, and they'll put the box together and then they deliver it to you once a week. It's com again, community-supported agriculture, it's a great project either to do yourself. A buddy of mine over in San Diego used to do a CSA on his small farm for 10 families. And then they pay $25 a week for a box. And if he's doing it for 10 families, that's 250 bucks a week that you're bringing in. And you've got all this great food going out the door. So participating or doing your own CSA could be a really cool place to go. And picking the CSA, there might be 
different things throughout the course of the year that aren't in your regular diet or that you wouldn't have thought to buy or didn't know what were in the produce. So it's not for the, the super picky eater or somebody that's afraid to venture out to new recipes. Exactly. But like I tell my kids, I'm like, who knows? It could be the best thing you've ever had in your life. You won't know until you try it. And often what happens with the CSA is if they, they put, I don't know, arugula in a box, they'll give you a recipe on what to do with it. Or parsnips. What do you do with a parsnip? You can roast them, and they're, apparently they're really good. So that's community-supported ag, and there are a number of them throughout Arizona. Yeah, and I've seen them for herbs. I've seen them for vegetables. I've seen them for fruits. I've seen them for flowers. There's. I interviewed somebody on my podcast recently that was doing a community-supported agriculture box for flowers. So you got a weekly delivery of flowers for your table. And you had mentioned earlier in the broadcast that was one of the crops you had found to be pretty profitable. The things that would sell the fastest were the flowers. And I wasn't purposely growing flowers. I just happened to have flowers that were growing on the property because I grow them for pollinators. Flowers bring in pollinators, so I grow lots of flowers. In fact, I recently interviewed Lisa. Oh, my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on her last name for my podcast. And she said 20% of what you grow should be flowering things because that brings in the pollinators for you. Herbs are the most expensive thing to buy in the store and the easiest thing to grow. And I'll tell you what, if you were growing basil, you could find a chef that would probably take pounds of basil off your every week. <laughs> if you're thinking about doing this for a business, that's not a market to skip past is local chefs. And if I was going to start get started again, I would go find two or three of my favorite restaurants. I would find out who the chef was there, and I would ask them, if I was growing something for you, what would you like for me to grow for you? And they'll be very excited to get locally grown produce from somebody they know. Obviously, there's veggies to grow. There's a whole palette of veggies you can grow, and of course, fruit trees. There's some peaches and apples and apricots that are so incredibly prolific in the low desert that you could plant 20 or 30 or 50 of those trees and you would have enough fresh fruit to sell and actually make a living on. It's all just getting started. If somebody was going to get started, I think if you're going to try and do this for yourself, plant what you enjoy to eat. If you're looking to do it as an additional revenue stream, you had just made the point about talking to local chefs and seeing what products they would take and then also visiting local farmer's market and see what products might be missing so that you could then focus on to get your niche commodity started in your yeah, own home. Precisely. Or patio garden with a tower garden or a flower street garden on the patio. There's no shortage of options and setups and you don't need to necessarily have growing space land to do it. Obviously, the more, if you have a little bit more, that's better, but there are options for anybody. And actually, you know what, before I left Phoenix, I was growing a medicinal herb, not pot. This was a medicinal herb called Cida Acuda. It's a, a potent natural antibiotic. And I was actually growing some of those herbs, that particular one, for a couple of people in Phoenix. And I was growing it in a pot on the patio. You found your niche. Just saying. That, that's one of the things I'm looking at doing here, actually, is medicinal herbs for the, for the industries here. Because Gaia Herbs is right here in our neighborhood. And so I'm looking to see about growing medicinal herbs. 
And you've got a website for knowing what grows at what time in the low desert? Yeah, exactly. The most important thing you can do in getting stuff planted is know what to plant when. If you go to plantingcalendar.org, that's one of my websites, and it'll give you a free planting calendar on when to plant, because if you plant at the wrong time, good luck. That's Farmer Greg. We've been talking urban farm fun, making a fun adventure for your own urban farm, and he'll join us next month in April talking about backyard animals. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.